Hello, I'm Kate Chabot. Welcome to SITREP, your weekly look at the big issues in defence and world affairs. Billions have been spent on arming Ukraine. We hear from the American base behind the logistics operation. How the Ukrainians have been able to repel and fight back and have brought the fight really to uh, Russia. It's a huge testament to our ability to marshal our forces to the point of need. Speaking truth to power. People that make those decisions understand that people are our greatest asset. And therefore, we need to be really, really conscious of the, the effects that, you know, cost of living is having on our people. The man who advises the chiefs of staff sets out his priorities and the veterans retracing a Second World War commando raid. Having to hide all day, soaking wet, freezing cold and to be able to try and put yourself a little bit into their mindset is really quite humbling. Since the start of Russia's invasion, NATO countries have sent billions of pounds worth of arms and equipment to Ukraine, helping to change the balance of power on the ground. The UK is the second largest provider of military assistance after the United States, committing £2.3 billion so far and has pledged to match that next year. The US has committed $19.3 billion since President Biden took over. Here's his Secretary of State, Anthony Blinken. We have neither encouraged nor enabled the Ukrainians to uh, strike inside of Russia. The important thing is to understand what Ukrainians are living through every day and our determination to make sure that they have the uh, equipment that they need to defend themselves, to defend their territory, uh, to defend their freedom. The logistics operation to coordinate and transport weapons and equipment into Europe is based at Scott Air Force Base in Illinois. The requests come from Ukraine through United States European Command, or UCOM, and the Illinois base is responsible for getting the arms and equipment to Europe. Earlier, I spoke to Major General Laura Lenderman, the Director of Operations at the base, and Brigadier General Charles Bolton, the US Transportation Command Global Operations Center Chief, to find out more about their operation. If it's something that's needed urgently, then we'll turn to using aircraft to do that. Looking at our commercial partners first and then using our organic C-17s second. If it's not needed urgently, then um, we have moved a lot more over to the surface, uh, putting it on ships and and moving it over there. That's been a, a huge win for us as we've gotten really good at forecasting the requirement far enough out we can allow that sale time to be able to get the uh, the support over there. Major General Landerman, can you just tell me a little bit more about the process of, of what happens when a request comes from Ukraine to it actually being fulfilled? In general, you know, it comes in from through UCOM, uh, who's there on the ground, and they work directly with the Ukrainians and um, the folks as they, as they determine what they need and, and the rate at which they need it. And so it goes into a, a working group and it's adjudicated at different levels and works up to uh, the secretary and the president. So that process, like we've we've become pretty good at that um, over time, um, coming up almost on a year. And so we've learned kind of the battle rhythm of that process. And so we know a little, you know, far enough in advance where we can get predictive requirements. We'd still like to go out even further because um, the further we can look ahead, the more efficient and the more effective we can be uh, for our partners and, and the allies um, there on the ground. And Major General Lenderman, how do you liaise with other nations in NATO, such as the UK Armed Forces? 
You know, we have liaisons all around the world. We have a liaisons there in UCOM uh, uh, that work more directly, I'd say, with the UK partnership. But we certainly um, have the opportunity to do that too. And we try to um, utilize the airlift uh, across our, our allies and partners. Um, so whatever they're able to contribute, and I know the UK has a C-17 capacity, and you've been such wonderful partners for us uh, through the last, uh, you know, for our entire history um, of the Air Force in particular, and Transcom, uh, especially over the last 20 plus years of conflict in the CENTCOM theater. So we've developed those relationships, and we know your capabilities and capacity, and we're able to leverage that um, as much as we can. Brigadier General Bolton. Can you tell us about the biggest challenge in supplying Ukraine so far and how that may change with the winter coming? Probably the biggest challenge, uh, and we've worked through this over time, was trying to determine what the Ukrainians may need and, and getting that there to them ahead of time. That decision loop has gotten really, really good over time. As we approach the winter, I can tell you we're already thinking about that, as, as you've probably seen in and the aid that the president has approved, there's there's been some material in there that, that anticipates that they're going to need some things as they deal with this crisis through the winter. And so, again, that's a testament to the lessons learned. Major General Lenderman, um, the speed at which you've been able to deliver to Ukraine has changed dramatically, hasn't it, since the start of the war? How much have you learned and how big a challenge has it been overall? So in the beginning, um, and I, I will go back to my experience on the airlift side when I was in Air Mobility Command, and, and you know we were concerned about a cyber attack. We were concerned of, for our forces on the ground that would be helping to um, expedite the delivery. We don't actually go into Ukraine. We don't move it into Ukraine, but we have allies and partners there in NATO, Germany and Poland in particular. Um, but Poland has become a, a very important partner when it comes to uh, how we airlift things into theater. So just getting folks on the ground there, expediting that movement, that was that's all part of the fog and friction of war. Like, who do you need? How are they going to get there? How quickly can they get set up? And and those were the first couple of weeks back in the February, March timeframe. But once they got settled in and we started to get into our battle rhythm, that's when, um, you know, your military training kicks in and, and everything starts to run a little bit smoother. So you talked about um, the fears at the beginning of a cyber intervention. How much has Russia actually done to try and stop you delivering the equipment? So that's a, an interesting question. I, I think, you know, at this classification level, I can just just speak to the fact that we have we have great intelligence. We've been able to to get ahead where we can and, and understand the threat as best we can. We have working groups here that monitor that. And I think, you know, as you can see, we, we are able to deliver pretty much uncontested. So at this point, you know, we're doing really well. Brigadier General Bolton, do, do you have any sense about the impact of the equipment you've delivered on the ground in Ukraine? Oh, I absolutely. I mean, um, just you know, watching the open source reporting about how the Ukrainians have been able to repel and fight back and have brought the fight really to uh, Russia. It's it's a huge testament to our ability to uh, marshal our forces to the point of need. So um, I think we've had a big impact on that. I think we all see it every day. And have there been any log jams in the system that holds things up in terms of delays in production of equipment? Uh, from from a transcom perspective, I mean, there's just the normal, you know, we've used that fog and friction term quite a bit. There's always little things in the system, you know, the ability to get the munitions to the port, to get them through the base, to get them on the ship. I mean, there's routine issues that happen, but nothing that's been significant that has delayed our ability to be able to 
to provide the support that the Ukrainians need. And your team was also involved in pitting, I understand, the evacuation from Kabul in Afghanistan. Can you tell me more about what was learned from that? Well, there was a lot of good lessons learned. Um, primarily our ability to uh, command and control that effort. We, we were moving very fast during the, uh, the non-combatant evacuation out of uh, Afghanistan. Uh, as you saw all the pictures and the ability to uh, coalesce that information, disseminate it, you know, took a lot of work. So we've improved a lot of our, our information technology to be able to provide updates to our senior leaders quicker, be more agile about it, less manpower intensive. That's probably been the biggest lesson learned that we're using that went directly into uh, our support to Ukraine. Uh, Major General Lenderman, looking ahead, what lessons have been learned from the logistics operation over the last year that have been useful for the future, do you think? Well, I'll, I'll kind of touch on what Charlie experienced there. Again, um, the Kabul evacuation, I think, helped really establish the relationships as well and having a direct comms across the theaters. Because when you have a, an operation that seems to be isolated to one theater, it's actually, uh, it actually affects the entire globe. And one of the things here at Transcom is we have that perspective on the globe. And so we're able to, to draw the connections and the pieces and parts together and see where the impacts are going to be. So um, from where I sit, I think having, having had that, um, that emergency, that crisis that brought us all together, um, it, was, it was challenging. It was fast paced, as Charlie mentioned, um, but it created a rhythm of conversation and a rhythm of uh, collaboration, um, not only internally to the United States, but across our um, allies and partners. And so from there, we rolled right into the Ukrainian operation and we kind of, we took that battle rhythm and it became stabilized. And so now we, you know, like any great team, once you've worked together and you've played a couple of games together, you get to know each other's strengths and, and you can draw on each other and um, you have that direct line uh, to call when you need support. And so we've got the processes now, we've got the relationships, we have the whole of government approach where we have the industry involved as well. And um, mm -hmm. the whole world is, is really behind this effort. And that's pretty, pretty incredible to, to see where we sit. And I think, you know, God forbid, we don't want to have a, a third crisis on, on our hands, but if we do, then we'll be able to just take what we've learned here and apply it toward that next theater, knowing they won't be exactly the same, in, Pacific, in particular in the Pacific. Um, we have a different challenge there. We don't have the, the road network. We don't have the rail network. It'll be a, a fast-moving sea, air process that we'll, we'll have to learn uh, some more of these important lessons. But I think we can take the core of what we've learned here and apply it toward any theatre, any crisis. Major General Laura Lenderman and Brigadier General Charles Bolton. I'm joined now by Professor Michael Clark, former director of the defence think tank RUSI. And Mike, we heard there how US weapons get into Europe. There have been concerns, though, about how production amongst allies will keep up with the demand. Yes, uh, quite a lot of concerns because I think we've, uh, politicians are now beginning to realise that this Ukraine war marks the return of industrial warfare to Europe. And that means that our defence industries are all now producing at too small a rate to meet those requirements. Although defence industries in Europe and the United States are very good, they've consolidated so much in recent years that their physical ability to produce um, vast quantities, particularly of ammunition, is severely limited. And the United States, they revealed this week that they've given a million shells, artillery shells, to Ukraine, and they've just upped their order. They normally produce 14,000 artillery shells a month in normal times, and they've just decided that they need 
20,000 a month from next year and 40,000 a month by 2025. So they've, they're tripling their production of artillery shells. They're doubling their number of um, rockets for HIMAR rockets and multiple launch rocket systems. Now, here in the UK, we have just decided, the MOD has announced, that it's replacing the NLAWS system, the a deal they've got with Saab, who produce it. You know, it's manufactured by Thales in, in Belfast, and it looks as if we've got an order there for 7,000 more NLAWS. Mm. But that order is between 2024 and 2026. Um, it, the fact yeah. is, we need a lot more of everything now for next year. And that's one of the things that worries me about this war, is that whereas the United States is in pretty good shape to increase their production even they are struggling the europeans are in very bad shape to actually provide more of the same that they've been providing so far in this war and mike it was interesting to hear in that interview hearing them talk about the lessons learned and how, now how they'll help them in any future crisis including any possible ones in the pacific yeah, it's. I mean, what uh, they were both saying there, the Brigadier General and the Major General, was the old Eisenhower um, motif, really, which is that plans are rubbish, but planning is everything. You know, any given plan you've got won't meet the requirements, but your ability to plan, your ability to react to the situation is fundamental. And what they were saying there is that we learned out of the, the Afghanistan fiasco how to work with certain allies. We're learning lots of things out of this. And as they said there, you know, we think we're confident that we can work in any theatre, any crisis, because they've now got developed a system where Transcom, the US Transport Command, can deliver by air or sea or land, more or less mm. anywhere in the world, more efficiently than they were doing before. And the challenge, of course, is that as allies, both allies in the Pacific, like South Korea and Japan, allies in Europe, like the rest of us, we've got to step up to that. We've got to take this much more seriously than we thought we would have to before. You know, we always thought we had at least until 2030 before it really got serious. Well, no, it's serious now. Mm and we've got to get on with it. Mike, stay with us. Speaking truth to power is not always easy, but in some ways it's the job description of SIAC, otherwise known as the Senior Enlisted Advisor to the Chiefs of Staff Committee. WO1 Rick Angove has had that job since January. His stated role is to bring the perspective of warrant officers, non-commissioned officers and junior ranks to the most senior people in the armed forces. His remit covers standards in culture, conditions and pay, training, families, mental health, development opportunities and veterans. He spoke to me earlier and I asked him first how he would describe his role. The role of SIAC is, is relatively new in concept and, and we're still sort of really defining exactly where it gets after it. But, you know, certainly from my perspective, it's it's so wide ranging that actually it's it's, it's quite a privilege to hold, hold the role. Um, so I can cover everything from diversity, inclusion, culture of the armed forces, all the way through to the effects that uh, we're seeing in the impacts of things like the, the current cost of living crisis and, and how that affects the operational sort of side of, of things for our people. So it's, it's, it's fairly diverse and, and broad, especially for, for one person to take, which also means that, you know, I need to be really heavily linked in with both, you know, the senior leaders from a military perspective, but also our senior civil servants in main building, uh, because they're ultimately the ones that do do the policy so you know being that interlocutor and, and having good relationships is really important and what experience have you had in your career before taking this role that's helped you do what you're doing now yeah I mean I joined the Royal Marines uh, 16 years old uh, so I'm nearly 32 years into a, a very long career but I think the the experience that I've gained 
going through uh, from a very young Marine all the way up to, to having held uh, two appointments at Regimental Sergeant Major at unit level and then become the Brigade or, uh, Regimental Sergeant Major. And then the job that I did before this, which was called Regimental Sergeant Major for all Marines, I think really set me up for certainly for an element of success in this role because all of those, all of those positions are not too dissimilar to, to what I do now. This is just on a slightly more macro level. So that, that experience and having delved into obviously both the, the Navy, but also worked very closely with, with the Army in a n- numerous units, I think has given me that, that better broad perspective of, uh, of the force. And how do you actually keep in touch with the ranks exactly to reflect their views to the top of the chain of command? Yeah, I mean, it's it can be quite difficult. You know, the, the Armed Forces is a big organisation. Um, I'm only one person. Uh, so... You know, amongst you know the the, the visiting you know or people across the force. Um, another important uh, mechanism for me is the the service warrant officers because the, the the network is very flat and fast. So using using them to be able to get a feel for you know each of the services is really really important. But there's also other other areas, other networks. Um, you know, I do uh, quite a bit in the gender advocate sort of um, space. So using, you know, defence uh, service women's network, uh, defence gender network, um, and tapping into all of those is, you know, helps me to get a little bit of a sense of what's going on. But you can't mitigate against actually getting out and, and really speaking to, to people because that's where you get the real true sense of where everything's, uh, what, what's happening and what's affecting it. And in terms of culture and standards, what can you do to help bring changes to culture and attitudes? Because there have been shocking accounts recently across the armed services of, of deep sexism and inappropriate behaviour. Yeah, I mean, uh, I mean, a lot of that stuff is, is legacy. So what I wouldn't want people to think is that the current armed forces is is in a bad place because it's not. Because the majority of our armed forces are are in a in a really good place with regards to you know that ethical behaviour, good behaviours. But it's but it's about uh, making sure that that best practice that we see in our people is is also uh, demonstrated and, 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 and articulated right up the chain of command as well. Because we can have a we can have a focus or we can focus quite a lot on the negativity um, that comes out through media. But actually, our people are doing a lot of a lot of great work. You know, extraordinary people doing extraordinary things. Um, but culture take, does take time. Where, what we've got to do is identify uh, those places where we can have tangible change and we can do it at pace. Mm-hmm. You know, and diversity inclusion has come a long way, um, you know, in the last sort of decade, but certainly in the last sort of couple of, um, couple of years. And it's, it, but it's slow progress. And what we need to do is actually identify areas, as I've already alluded to, and, and get after them very, very quickly to, to make sure that all our people, irrespective of gender, beliefs, um, are, are treated exactly the same. Because then, you know, we, we will have a better, diverse uh, and more operationally focused force. And, and do you worry overall that standards are slipping or are you satisfied? I'm, I'm satisfied. Uh, absolutely. Uh, no, standards are you know, introduce, you know, week one, day one uh, during phase one training. And, and as I say, for the majority of our people, our values and standards and our mindset are intrinsically, you know, uh, bred into them from, from day one. And they, and they live by that. 
a lot. And you, you only have to see that when you speak to some of our people, you know, where they're doing UK resilience operations in the UK, what they're doing in training and development and, and helping Ukraine, or even out doing global operations. It's really, really impressive. So I am fairly content that we are in a, in a good space in that. But we need to make sure that the whole force is doing it. Um, and it's always the, the minority of people that sometimes get it wrong that we need to educate. You mentioned earlier about the cost of living being a particular pressure, and that does affect individuals. What can you do to help members of the armed forces? So this role doesn't own any levers or any direction. But what I can do is, is represent the views from essentially the shop floor via the service warrant officers into people like the chief of defence people and all of his team that work in main building to make sure that when they're looking at policies that affect our people, that that view is represented. And for a typical example is the recent rise we had for 7% pay allowances. That was also the using the network to identify some of the issues that some of our people are having, you know, whether that was getting in, in and out of work, family issues and all of that is is cohering all of that and then feeding that in and it's just one other mechanism that they can have to you know inform but ultimately I think what we've all got to be very conscious of is we're in a really tight financial situation now and there's some ruthless priorities that need to be done and I think this role along with all the other networks is just making sure people that make those decisions understand that people are our greatest asset and therefore, we need to be really, really conscious of the, the effects that, you know, cost of living is having on our people, because it's not just them as individuals, as service personnel, it's also their families. And, and although it's a societal issue where we can make changes that help mitigate some of those, those pressures that our people are, are, are under, then almost certainly I will represent that, you know, in the strongest sense. And we've had some good progress recently. That doesn't mean that it's perfect and we still need to continue to, to do so. You mentioned ruthless priorities. What are you talking about? Well, I mean, you know, financially, you know, as a, as a nation, you know, we are heavily constrained and where, where money can go. And in defence at the minute, you know, we're, we're conducting a, an IR refresh to make sure that the integrated review 2020 is still fit for purpose. But it also, also about looking at what capabilities we want for the future and seeing what is affordable. And, and currently, you know, the senior leadership is currently going through that process to, to make sure that we are focusing the right areas to make sure that, you know, the armed forces is equipped right for any potential conflicts that we may face in the future. WO1, Rick Angove. Mike Clark, he mentioned the refresh of the integrated review there, as did the chief of the air staff this week, who said it's right we take a stock check following the invasion of Ukraine. What are you hearing about this refresh? Uh, Well, it's going ahead and it should be finished in January or possibly February. I don't think there's any need to revisit the the essay, as it were, the the context setting of the integrated review. That was all fine. It's all about priorities, really. And given that we we are now involved in a a war in Europe, which is the most dangerous situation we've had in, in the continents for a generation or more, it's obviously right that some of the assumptions are re examined. But the problem is that the MODs, in a way, is also moving in the other direction because it's trying effectively in real terms to save money spent on defense because with inflation that's cutting into defense and I think the, the you know the real expenditure on the defense budget will be going down not up at exactly the time when we need to do more on defense so somehow the refresh has got to square that circle.
And on a wider point about personnel, are you hearing anything about the use of the military to help cover services and any strike action? Well, they're not that happy about it. Uh, about 2,000 service personnel have been warned off for some training. A lot of that is for uh, border force operations and some of it for driving, if they need to do some ambulance driving, maybe even fire service driving. But we should be aware that there's only a certain amount the military can do. They can offer, as we're relatively unskilled uh, support, which they do. Um, and the military get quite annoyed about this, I think. They're very happy to turn out when required for the Olympics or COVID or foot and mouth or the floods or tra tanker drivers strikes. But I think the nervousness at the moment is that we may be heading towards some sort of in effect a general strike over the, the the new year and they really don't want to be in a situation where they're providing a sort of safety valve which allows the government not to have a proper policy on industrial relations because they can always turn out the military to keep things things going i think that makes them very nervous because that's uh, above and beyond the sort of aid to the civilian power that they would normally provide news discussions and analysis this is Sitrep. Now, a group of ex-servicemen are currently kayaking up a French river to commemorate the 80th anniversary of Operation Frankton, a daring World War II mission. Operation Frankton's mission in 1942 was to mine and destroy enemy ships in Bordeaux, then under German occupation. Only two of the 10 Royal Marines returned. The group of mainly Royal Marine veterans are retracing the route of the commando raid and raising money for three armed forces charities. Earlier, I caught up with Army veteran Los Moore just before he took to the river again. So it's really interesting to actually experience the same body of water that the Op Frankton raiders passed through on their way into Bordeaux Harbour. Um, the water hasn't changed. The temperature may have changed a little, but it's still very cold. Um, but it's, it's more about seeing the way that the tidal flows cause uh, different conditions on the water from, you know, quite choppy, severe water, especially when we were entering from the Atlantic coast uh, down to really fast flowing waters now. So just being able to uh, feel the different conditions has been quite good. But also to be able to see these little inlets where Hasler and his men would have had to have laid up during the day. And they're, they're just little reed beds at the side of the larger estuary. And this is where these guys in very rudimentary basic kit would have been having to hide all day, soaking wet, freezing cold. Uh, and to be able to try and put yourself a little bit into their mindset is really quite humbling. Yeah. And, and Hasler was a man who, who led the expedition, wasn't he? Um, I mean, what have you learned so far about the kind of bravery that was needed? I think that the men who volunteered for this type of commando raid were a special breed of individual because we were discussing it last night in the camp that these people didn't necessarily have the modern comforts of nowadays, central heating, um, you know, lots of really nutritious food. They, they were hard people from hard times. So they already had that, but then they volunteered to go and do the extra commando training, which really pushed them to their limits. But then still to be able to launch into an operation like this in the middle of winter after having sat on the bottom of the ocean in a submarine for 48 hours before even starting and then literally getting out of that submarine getting soaking wet losing one of your boats immediately losing a second one very soon after that and thinking gosh we've still got to carry on down this enemy occupied body of water and try and place limpet mines on german ships you know it's unbelievable <laughs> 
Um, tragically, only two men survived of the original uh, expedition. Ah. What's your assessment of what they achieved in the end as a historian yourself? My belief is that we were a part of the war where Britain alone stood against the might of the Nazi onslaught. And Winston Churchill needed to show that he was still in the fight. He needed to show the British people that they still had that spirit to persevere. Arguably, uh, they didn't have a massive strategic impact, but what they did do is showed the British people that we, we were still in this fight and we were still going to carry on. Uh, and so that, that was actually... My, my belief, the, one of the main sort of reasons why these were so beneficial. And as I said, you're almost halfway through the paddling stage. Just talk us through what you've got ahead and what the challenges are likely to be. So it's quite exciting now because we actually get to enter from rural Bordeaux wine country and enter into Bordeaux proper. So we will see all of the Bordeaux public out and about on enjoying their evening. Uh, and then we're going we're gonna to turn up with head torches on and uh, they're going to be quite surprised to see these uh, five strange-looking boats and ten strange-looking men climbing out from a pontoon on, onto the middle of where they're having their sort of evening meals. Um, so it's going to be quite exciting. And uh, I think that that will really be, you know, job done. Eight months of planning, that, that will really be the culmination for us all to sort of really stamp our mark on this as the 80th anniversary just to pay our respects to the bravery of the men of Operation Frankton. Lars Moore, and there will be commemorations in Bordeaux to mark the anniversary. My thanks to Professor Michael Clark and to all of our guests this week. We'll be back with another SITREP next Thursday. And if you want to listen online, you can now find us on the Forces News YouTube channel, as well as our home at bfbs.com slash SITREP, or wherever you download your podcasts. For now, though, from me, Kate Chabot, thank you for listening. Bye-bye. Mm-hmm.